Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. If you're into philosophy, you'll be happy to know that wine fueled the writings and debates of some of our earliest and most respected philosophers. In ancient Greece, specifically the Hellenic period, 14 to 30 men would gather in a room with several couches and drink watered-down wine from vessels known as craters. First, they'd pour a few drops out for their gods and ancestors. Then they would discuss and debate a topic or two. The night usually ended in reverie, after multiple craters of wine had been drunk. The idea was to come together for wine and goodwill, but also to explore specific topics. In part, these symposiums of ancient Greece are the wellspring of the basic concepts of modern philosophy. Now things could get crazy towards the end. A common drinking game to play was kotobos. This is a game that we really need to bring back. In kotobos, you swirl your dregs in the bottom of your drinking bowl and then fling them from the bowl at a target. It's kind of like playing darts with leaves. Except the target in this case is a statue with two discs. Your goal is to knock the top disc off its stand with your sediment, and then have the disc fall onto the lower disc and make a ringing sound. But some people floated saucers in water, and they used their flung lees globs to sink the saucers. And the stakes were high. If you were bad at Cotabos, it also culturally insinuated that you'd be unlucky in love as well. So these symposiums were pretty fun, but not for us ladies. Unless we were escort girls or flute players, we were pretty much banned from the scene. Today, nearly every educational conference has the schedule stacked with symposiums. Academia has adopted the concept of the symposium as a forum for idea exchange. But sadly, you will seldom find any craters of wine or people throwing sediment around the room at these scholarly events. Our current idea of the symposium is tamer, and I'm forced to consider, is this a good thing? Well, let's take a look at Eubulus's play. He wrote it back in 375 BC. In it, he gets Dionysus to give some pro tips on how to host a symposium. For sensible men, I prepare only three craters. One for health, which they drink first. The second for love and pleasure and the third for sleep. After the third one is drained, wise men go home. The fourth crater is not mine anymore. 
It belongs to bad behavior. The fifth is for shouting. The sixth is for rudeness and insults. The seventh is for fights. The eighth is for breaking the furniture. The ninth is for depression. The tenth is for madness and unconsciousness. So next time you're reading Plato's Allegory of the Cave, and you wonder where he got all those wild ideas about shapes and form shadows dancing in front of a fire, ponder this. What was his blood alcohol level when he wrote it? It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at OffsetPartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand michael mossberger of slash goblesberg on the show today nice to see you Nice to see you. Thank you for being here. Welcome. So tell me a little bit about how you got involved with Schloss Goebbelsberg. Your, your family was originally in the hotel and restaurant business in Austria. And what happened? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I, uh, I'm originating from, from the hotel and, and, and restaurant trade. And my family runs a small, small five-star hotel in the skiing areas of Austria. And... So I basically was raised and uh, was educated uh, in in this trade. But um, uh, when I was on on university, uh, suddenly my my father didn't come back from the Himalaya. And uh, so we were in the situation that uh, we had, uh, that all we, my brothers and sisters had had to come back home, uh, help my mother. And uh, so... This was basically the the moment when I got really involved in wine. I mean, wine was always a very important issue uh, in our family life. My father was the co-founder of the first Austrian sommelier association. And uh, so I, I basically picked up uh, this, this interest and uh, uh, I started to, to learn about all the the vineyards in Austria, but also uh, very internationally, like all the wines from Burgundy, from Bordeaux, from Italy. And uh, and so so I, I slowly came in, into the Straits. And uh, when, 
When I made my apprenticeship, then after my brother had taken over the family business in uh, 1992, I I came into the Danube area, um, and I started basically from the stretch uh, in in the vineyards, and uh, on the tractor and in in the cellar. And uh, after I had more or less finished my apprenticeship, I I started to think about you know what I'm going to do now after and. So I was I was looking, you know, if if I could find a place where where I could spend my ideas, where I could develop my own ideas, and uh, and I, I was looking basically all over in 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 in, in Austria, in, in Styria, and in, in the Burgenland area, in the Danube area, and uh, when um, uh, when suddenly Willy Brundlmeier uh, called me up and and said, well, what's going on, and do you already have something? Uh, I said no. Well, and he said, "Well, I, there would be something, you know, that would be kind of interesting." And uh, so, in December uh, 1995, we uh, we drove up to to the monastery uh, of Zwettel. It's a Cistercian monastery, which is uh, about half an hour north uh, of the of Langenlois. And uh, yeah, we we started to talk about the monks and and the ideas and all the situation and. And uh, everything went up very quickly, you know, within uh, within two weeks, you know, we signed the contracts uh, based on two generations. And um, and in so in for you and your son or, or daughter. Exactly. It's uh, because the, the situation you have to imagine that uh, the situation in the winery is always uh, that you need to have a long term perspective, you know, and. When I'm planting a vineyard uh, today, I'm not doing it for myself anymore because until the point, you know, when the vineyard is uh, will be like 20 years, it, it will not be me who is, who is going to look after this vineyard and, uh, and, and probably my son or one of my daughters will be responsible for, um, for that. And so uh, that's why everything in wine, you know, takes a lot of time. And, and so you need this time, you know, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that, that you also take investments in, in, in a project uh, like Goebbelsberg. Did you find that the monks took a longer term view of winemaking than other people you'd encountered? The thing is that uh, in, in, in a family business, normally you, uh, you have a perspective of, 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 of one generation because, I mean, the, the most important and the most difficult um, a project for every father is to 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 bring a winery or a business into the next generation. Monks are dif- thinking differently because uh, monks have a, a perspective of centuries and not of a generation. So he, he is a, a completely different thinking, you know. So before you arrived at the winery, you did stages and you worked with Fritz Solomon uh, in the Kremstall for a bit. What was that like? I had a great relationship with uh, Fritz. I mean, he's about my age, and uh, uh, and uh, he he taught me a lot of things that are very important uh, in what I'm doing uh, now at Goebbelsberg. Because in in these days, I, I was uh, I was interested not only in wine. I was also interested in all other aspects of of agriculture, acres and and fruit trees and. Uh, and uh, in 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 this estate, you know, we were producing not only wine. It it uh, they they had a very good restaurant actually there, and 
And uh, so beside the agricultural side, we we did a lot of things there that we were using then in in, in the restaurants. Animals, we had sheep, we had goose, uh, turkey, everything. And and so apricot trees. And uh, so a lot of things, you know, we were producing. We were producing eau de vie and and, and all that kind of stuff. So it it was a kind of a very universal uh, universe, a, a very kind of still very old-fashioned universe because it's a it used to be a structure that that really came from the past you know that the, the structure of the gutsbetrieb uh, which is you know something that 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 already you know steiner used in his philosophy of, of biodynamics uh, as, as as a whole universe uh, that that he was uh, thinking that that should be maintained in 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 agriculture fritz was married to a daughter of the yamek family and you also worked at Yamek, which is another kind of iconic Austrian estate. What was it like working at Yamek? Yamek was one of uh, one of our major suppliers and family business. I mean, we had a very very long relationship uh, with the Yamek family, and uh, he's an uh, he he used to be an, an iconic personality in in Austria. He was uh, beside Father Bertrand uh, at Goebbelsberg. He he was. The, the big uh, supporter for for a, a dry Austrian style of wine and and uh, so he he was very very specific uh, I and and I really learned a lot uh, from him especially you know when it comes to to careness and 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 strictness in 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 uh, what you need to be uh, what you need as a winemaker you know for for the consequences that, that, that you need in, in winemaking. A lot of people talked about those wines as somewhat traditional, but also somewhat unique. How would you kind of describe what he was up to at that time? It was unique because uh, because he, he was kind of, you know, sensitive towards acidity. And uh, so he was practicing quite on a, on a quite regular basis, malolactic fermentation. So, which which was very unusual, you know, in these days. Nowadays, we we are we also practicing malolactic fermentation, not on a regular basis, because I think that that's not really in the style of of Austrian of of the Austrian wine culture. But uh, but especially in 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 very cool and and late ripening years, when we have uh, rather high acidity levels. Uh, instead of reducing chemically uh, acidity, it's uh, it's an appropriate tool to to balance the wines here a little bit uh, with a little bit of malolactic fermentation. So, how did you meet Willy Brundemeyer? How did that segue that he knew to call you about Salzgobelsberg? Willy, I know from um, also from from my times at the family business. I knew him as as being one of the. Austrian wine professors, if if you uh, if you would like to uh, to say, I mean, whenever I I had a question, you know, when it comes specifically to wine techniques and and to understand my, you know, when I was learning about wines, and then he he was one of the guys that always had 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 a good answer. I mean, he had a very very university approach also to winemaking. He 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 also knew a lot of things uh, what the colleagues in France were doing uh, so because his wife is french uh, and uh, so they had a a big relationship to france and uh, and he was he was introducing a lot of french techniques in austria i mean he's 
is one of these personalities uh, who were very important for 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 the um, uh, for the Austrian wine developments in the past thirty years. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, we had a good friendship and we always kept contact also during my times when I made my apprenticeship. And and he, he also knew, you know, that I was looking for, for a place, you know, where I could bring in my ideas on winemaking. And you had taught yourself some other languages and traveled before taking up Goebbelsberg. Is there other vineyard or winemakers that really influenced you before you started out on your own? In um, especially in in my my hotel years, I and so many years, uh, I, I visited quite quite a lot of different vineyards and um, and wineries in Italy, in in France, uh, in Germany, and and in Austria, uh, which was very important because it it's always important, you know, to visit wineries, you know, to get an idea, but. Uh, certainly, I think it's important uh, to understand why people are doing certain things in their area. But on the other side, for me, it was always important to respect our own traditions and uh, and uh, to find out, you know, what what's our culture in 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 the Danube area, and uh, to keep in focus and an eye actually on these specific uh, on these on these specific uh, situations. And uh, rather than trying to copy things from other areas, you know, I, I think it's it's a pro and a contra in, in, in a way, because I remember very well, uh, because when I started, uh, there was, you know, this was the times when Napa started to to uh, to challenge Bordeaux. And uh, later on, in the late 90s, we had the same thing in Austria going on when Austrian wines were compared to, to white Burgundy wines. Uh, you probably remember that with Chances Robinson and, and all these statements uh, that came after that. And uh, on one side, it, always, it, it, it helped a lot, certainly. You know, it, I mean, it certainly was a beginning on, on the international wine scene, these, these tastings. But on the other side, I always felt it a little bit stupid, you know, because I mean, definitely, if you're looking to the wines, I mean, I, I have I have great appreciation for, for 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 Burgundy wines and my colleagues in 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 Burgundy, and uh, but uh, for me, it was never never a question, you know, of what is good and what is better. I mean, I think that a good wine is a wine that really represents its origin, you know, and. And so, in in that respect, uh, I I've always been trying, you know, to uh, to make wines that are representing our area and that are representing our vineyards, and uh, are being still a a part of our culture. So, speaking about that culture, you know, the Schloss Goebbelsberg has a very long history, spanning almost a thousand years. How did that sort of start? Where is it exactly, and and how did it develop over time? The the car, Schloss is indicating castle, so that that means uh, it it still is it is a castle, uh, and and the history here goes back quite far beyond that. I mean the. Uh, settlement times started there about three and a half thousand years ago. It's a place that was settled through Roman times, Middle Ages, uh, first written documentation in in the eleventh century, and so on. But uh, what we are referring today is is basically the 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 history of the of the monastic estate Schloss Goldsberg, and and this history starts basically in in eleven seventy one. 
you know that in, in the 11th and 12th century, the Cistercian monks were spreading all over Europe, uh, coming from, from Burgundy. And one of these monasteries was founded uh, in uh, just about 20 to 30 minutes north of, of Langenlois. And uh, the monks got their first vineyards in 1171. And uh, so overall, the centuries, they starting, you know, that one vineyard after another uh, were coming to the property. So uh, it's quite a long time. And, and you can imagine that, you know, when you're collecting vineyards over so many hundreds of years, that's uh, that, you know, there's coming something together. And if you're looking to the, the, the vineyard spread that the monastery had in, in the in the uh, mid 18th century, you, you recognize that they already had vineyards in the south of Vienna. They had a winery in in uh, in, in Vienna. They had a winery in the today's wine fertile. They had uh, different places in the Danube area. And so uh, at that stage, the, the abbots of, of the monastery uh, thought about they should maybe should consider to to bring all these wines at some place together. And so after the mid 18th century, they started to develop uh, Goebelsberg as uh, the central cellar facility for all the wine activities. And the, the, the reason for that was that geographically, uh, Goebelsberg is, uh, was in a, a quite good situation because uh, you have to imagine that what highways are for us today in these days were the rivers. So we had very short access to, to the Danube. And so this was uh, strategically, you know, a very good place to be. So they they basically could bring all these wines here to Goebelsberg. And from Goebelsberg, they had access via the Danube towards the Western markets of Oberösterreich, Bavaria, uh, Tyrol. So these were markets that were very important in these days. And um, so uh, from that time on, they, they slowly developed Goebelsberg as their central seller facilities. And in the 20th century, the wines are often exported out of Austria. Goebbelsberg was one of the wineries that, that started to export wines quite early. I mean, the, I was looking through papers of, uh, the, of the 70s and 80s, and, and uh, already in these days they were exporting to, to the U.S. and uh, to England and uh, to Germany and, and, and so on. And in, in these days they had a, a very uh, uh, a personality uh, for the Bertrand that that used to be someone that was, he was really, really well known in, in these days in, in Vienna. He was known as a, as, a, as a colored dog, as we say, and women liked him very much. And, and so he was, you know, in, in, in the scene. The monk and, thing, gets the uh, women all the time. In, in, in a way, yes, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. I knew him very well, I knew him very well because he was, he was very much involved, actually, you know, when we took over. And he was a, a great source for me because uh, I, uh, I had the possibility through him, you know, to get a lot of information from from his days and from from how they were working, uh, and what the situation was there, and uh, or a lot of pictures actually. Yeah, I have pictures back to the thirties, to you know, from from vineyard sites and uh, from from the castle. So so he he was a great personality and and. Uh, certainly, the, the crisis of '85 made a, a kind of an, an end to, to all of this, and uh, slowly, slowly, you know, it, it took took quite a while actually, you know, to pick that up. 
and uh, nowadays nowadays we uh, we we were working quite international um, so about uh, two-thirds of our production is is exported uh, to international markets to the us canada but all over europe uh, but also to asia and i always believe that that Goldsberg deserves to be, you know, one of the representatives when it comes to to Austrian wine culture. You know, I have a very deep belief in that, and 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 uh, so I'm 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 doing my best, you know, to to put Goldsberg on 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 the map of of all the these wine lovers. Why do you think the monks chose to bring in someone that wasn't a monk from the outside to look after the winery? It's a difficult situation for for a monastery i mean you you can imagine for the time being it's not very hip to become a monk you know so i mean all, all the all these congregations they're suffering the average age you know of the monks today is quite high um so th- there are coming new ones but uh, quite slowly and and the thing is that if if you if you have a winery like goldsberg certainly you could work with a manager but the the thing is that you you also need to have someone who can control the manager you know? and you need someone you know who knows the vineyard and who, who knows the operation and who knows what's going on and and as long as father bertrand lived i mean he could do this but uh, but he has seen that that uh, on the long run it it wouldn't be possible you know to uh, to control such a situation and uh, so he said well if but for the time being, you know, we might not be able, you know, to to run it ourselves for whatever reasons. But we we don't know, you know, in in hundred years, this situation could be completely different, you know, and we might be hundred monks again, and uh, and then you know the, the situation will be different, and and we, we we will be able, you know, to send someone down who will run the winery again. And I think that's that's absolutely. Fine, and I think a, a very wise, um, very wise way to go. Because the thing is that if you if you would like to maintain uh, a heritage like Goebbelsberg, uh, the only thing, the, the only possibility uh, is to keep it in uh, in in a in in a foundation, and uh, because. Even you know what's the thing. This is what I'm always explaining. You know what the difference is between a family winery and uh, and and a winery like Goebbelsberg, which is, I, I always say, it's uh, Goebbelsberg is a is a is a wine cultural heritage of Austria. The the situation is in in a family business, as I said before. I mean, the biggest challenge is always to bring it into the new generation. You know. And uh, this might be successful for a, a couple of generations, and but you never know. I mean, it 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 could happen that you have a generation that is in, incapable to do it, and what's going to happen normally, you know, one vineyard after the other is sold, and at some stage nothing's left anymore. Uh, we have seen it so many times. Uh, there's scientific research actually at the moment going on, on on the situation in Langenlois in the 17th, 18th, 19th century, and. The the interesting thing is that none of these families who were you know kind of the big shots uh, of these days do exist anymore. You know, it's you know in, in Austria we have a saying that you know one generation is building up um, a business, the next one is going on, and the third one is selling it. Yeah, and 
it's it's happening it's happening all the time you know uh but Goblesburg here you know Goblesburg is is a little bit more than just a winery you know uh because uh when it comes to Goblesburg you always have these additional dimensions of of history of uh, of culture uh of uh, of traditions so um in a way you know whenever i'm doing a decision for Goblesburg it's not my my person per personality that really decides. I always have to ask myself: so where do we come from, and what is the next logical step in the development of the estate? And this is very different in in a family estate because in a family estate, um, the decision maker is always you know the family member on 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 the on the, on the top of the decision chain, and uh, so um, so it might could happen if you're looking for example. Joshko Gravna is a very good example for that, you know. Uh, Joshko used to be, you know, one of the really big modernists uh, in, in his area, you know. Everything, you know, new stainless steel tanks, uh, computer-controlled fermentation. And suddenly he decides, you know, well, this is all crap and we're going to do it completely the other way. You know, and this is, this is, this is you know, what's, what's going to happen very often in, 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 in a family. Or the next thing is that a new generation is coming. You know, I mean, if if you're looking if you're looking to to what happened in in former days, I mean, uh, when uh, when a when when a son learned from his father, you know, it was a kind of a continuity going on. Nowadays, we we are in a completely different situation. Uh, my son is is going to a winemaking school. You know, he's going out. He's going to make a stage. In, in France, in, in, in the US, in Australia or South Africa or wherever. Um, and at some stage, you know, he will come back. And then he brings his ideas and then he's starting to tell his father, you know, what he has been doing wrong in the past, <laughs> in the past couple of years, you know. And this is always a, a difficult, you know, it's a difficult situation. And, and But it only shows, you know, that... Um, that family wineries they have a lot of advantages, but the situation is always it's always based on the personality of of, of the winemaker and and the family of the winemakers. This in Austria we have a saying that uh, you you probably know uh, that uh, you know this uh, the, this saying that tell me what books are you reading and I tell you who you are. Yeah, and I think that counts the same way for for a winemaker. Uh, and because I always say, tell me what wines you're doing and I'll tell you who you are. And speaking of that, what are the holdings of Goblesburg and, and what is the production today? What what do you grow? Where do you grow it? How much of it do you grow? Well, Goblesburg is, is still in the, in the very old historical structure of a Gutsbetrieb. Uh, that means that <clears throat> in former times, agricultural places like Goblesburg, they, they were all mixed agricultural places so we were still doing um, agriculture so acres uh, so we're still doing fruit trees we still have our stables um, we don't have any animals at the moment but i'm convinced that in the next generation at least we, we will start again and then we have uh, the winemaking which is nowadays definitely you know the, the most important part nevertheless every 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 segment of of uh, Goblesburg is equal important to me, and um, we we are basically concentrating in our vineyards on Grüner Veltliner and Riesling. 
it's not only the identity of the Danube area. It's, uh, I think, I was, I was actually, I was very happy. I, re I still remember 18 years ago when I took over. Uh, I was very happy to to take over a winery uh, that is that is not based on 10 or 15 different grape varieties. Uh, I, I really could stick to to the things um, that that I felt important, and especially in in uh, concentrating on on Gruner and, and and Riesling, because I thought that you know there are so many things still to do with Gruner that that I don't want to waste time you know with other grape varieties you know that that uh, had definitely been here in, in in our area but for 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 many reasons uh, have been have been proving not to be the the, the right representatives um i did two three years ago i i did a tasting with david schilknecht on uh, on wines from our vinotech to silvana because uh, david was uh, very interested in silvana and uh, because Silvana is originating in Austria, and uh, so it, it it slowly moved from Austria to to the Franken area, and and found a new home there. And uh, there are fantastic wines coming coming from there. And and I personally believe that the situation and the climatical situation of Franken is just perfect for Silvana. And so we opened about ten different Silvanas from from our library. And at the end of the tasting, we just said. Well, I think there is a reason actually why Silvana does not exist anymore here. You know, it's just, I mean, it's okay, but it's not really good, you know. And so Grunewaldlina, I think, is, is, a, is, a, is a great, great, great variety. Um, and uh, it developed in our area. I think for the reason, because I think that the Danube area, and I'm talking about the Danube area as a total, so Wachau, Kremstal, Kamtal, it's an area that, that used to be together until 61, and then was uh, was subdivided into the four sub-areas only because of, of political reasons. Uh, so, you know, when politics comes into game, there's a lot of nonsense uh, going on. Um, so uh, the Danube area... I think is is a kind of sweet spot when it comes uh, to Gruner and because Grunewaldlina is uh, is kind of difficult because Grunewaldlina needs it's a very late ripening grape variety on one side but also on the other side it needs always a cool element uh, to keep structure and this is something that you very clearly see uh, when you compare it to to other origins of Gruner for example Burgenland I mean in the Burgenland area you get you get the maturity in Grunewaldlina, but you have no structure there. Yeah? And when you're going to the northern areas, then you have structure there, but you don't get the ripeness anymore. You know, and so that that's why I think that that the Danube area is just you know this 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 crossing point. You know where where you get both. You get the uh, you get the ripeness on one side, but also the structure on the other side. But the thing is that I think in in the past years I'm I'm turning more and more away, you know, to to put Grunewaldlina as a grape variety in the forefront. I think that in Austria, as as you know, we uh, we have been starting to develop an, an appellation system. Um, we're definitely not finished with that. Uh, There's a long way to go, 
But nevertheless, I think it's it's very important, and I think it's a kind of a next step uh, for for Austria, because uh, because um, I think that Grüner Weltliner was a, a great argument, you know, to bring Austria uh, on the international map. But uh, I think we're doing now the next step, and I think this is uh, this is what's going was what's going on at the moment. Uh, with the, the appellation system, so that the origin of wines getting more and more important. Um, I'm even already considering uh, to uh, to put the grape variety away from the labels um, on for for the single vineyard wines. I think it's 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 a development that will go on definitely for another generation. But uh, step by step, I think that uh, we are developing, you know, that um, that kind of system. That I think it's a, it's a good development on the long run. And what are those vineyards that you work? What are the sort of the keystone vineyards for you that you produce wines from? I mean, every vineyard, in 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 a way, is uh, uh, is equal important in a way. Um, on 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 the other side. As, as you know, we we are working on a on a vineyard classification uh, system in our area. Um, this is quite an interesting development because uh, it started in 1992, so long before I came uh, to Goebbelsberg. And interestingly enough, they decided in 1992 to to set up an association that is uh, that is trying to establish a vineyard classification system in our area. And as you know, I mean, a vineyard classification system is not something that you can do, you know, from one day to another. It needs a lot of time. I think that every uh, every classification, in a way, uh, is a historical process, uh, and that. This historical process is uh, has to be carried out by as many producers as possible, uh, and so basically for the past 20, 20 years we we've been working uh, in on the vineyards uh, with experts, with geologists, uh, doing a lot of tastings with these wines, and we've started in two thousand and nine to to bring out the first step in this classification. Uh, we have um, uh, we have identified about 50 vineyard sites uh, that we believe uh, could be worth uh, you know holding the the the, the label uh, of uh, of a of a premier cru we call it in austria we call it erste lage uh, which would be equally translated as uh, as first growth or premier cru uh, the the system is is also indicating uh, to have a grand cru, but uh, grand cru is not detected at this, this stage of the development. And but as in Burgundy, you know, when they started in Burgundy in th- 1934, and it it also took them like 40 years until 74 that, that they have really finished up, you know, with the classification. And and I don't expect that in Australia it, it will take less of time, you know, than to to do this classification. So. Uh, certainly, certainly these vineyards, you know, you know the names Heiligenstein, Lamm, Renner, Geisberg, Grub, uh, these vineyards, um, they're classified as, as, uh, as Erste Lage. These are definitely important, but not only because of the classification. Uh, we have in, in these holdings, we have uh, some of our oldest vineyards. Um, and this is also very important for me uh, because... Uh, uh, because when 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 I said 
uh, when I said that, that that I believe that Gobelswig is a heritage uh, in in the Danube area. Uh, I think also when it comes to the genetical side of our vineyards, I think that Gobelsberg is, is, a, is a heritage. And if, if you're looking to, to the vineyards that were planted in the 40s and 50s, it, it was a time when the, when, when, when the monks did the crafting still by themselves, you know. And, and uh, if, you, if you're doing for generation, generations the crafting yourself, you get a very specific selection in your vineyards. And uh, it's something that I believe it's not essentially better than uh, anything else, or maybe the selection of a neighbor or an, another winery. But it's a selection that has a, a, a historical uh, approach to the winery. You know, it was selected within the winery, and uh, I believe that in the times before uh, the, the clonal selections started uh, uh, to get hold on on on, on our vineyards. That uh, that the individualization between the wineries were much bigger, uh, because everyone was selecting in a different way, and and so the way how how the selection was done and and uh, uh, was leading, you know, to 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 the situation that that, that the wineries had, had a very specific personality. Uh, this is not something that is th that you know what I would say. You know, something is is quality wise now better than anything else. I think it's 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 just a personal and historical development, and I think this is something you know that we should regain, and uh, this is something that that we should you know come back to, and 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 for all our plantings, uh, we we've been we've doing uh, since in in the past eighteen years, I've, I've, uh, it, it was a very important part actually of my work, you know, to uh, to maintain this this genetical material. Uh, all our new plantations are based on that, and. Uh, and we're trying basically, you know, to, to, to develop this culture on. Did you feel that because they were monks, they took a different approach to hands-on labor or, or perhaps use or not use of chemicals either in the vineyard or in winemaking? In, in, in general, uh, I, I think that, that as, as, a, as a kind of a, a general idea for every monk, uh, a, a sustainable approach is, 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 is kind of essential. Um, and uh, this is uh, this is what I've learned when I took over at Goebbelsberg, uh, um When I was looking, you know, to the vineyards and to the healthiness of the vineyards, um, I mean, there was uh, no no big damage done, you know. And because they've also Father Bertrand has always been living, uh, especially you know when, when you have to consider um, the concept of mess wine, you know, the altar wine that you you use in in the daily masses. Um, is is based on on naturalness, you know. Um, it's uh, you're not allowed, you know, to to add any additives, uh, no matter if it's sugar or acidity, um, and no manipulation is allowed. And um, and so uh, so I think a, a kind of an, a kind of a, a sustainable approach, you know, to the vineyards is is I think it's a base concept actually to that. So when it comes to that, I think, and this is something that we that we still maintain. You know, we, I mean, all these questions are very trendy at the moment, and and uh, and I'm I'm very happy, you know, to see that that this became a trend now, and 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 that the things that we have been doing in in the past decades, you know, are becoming now a trend. Yeah, so that's that's good. When I think about the differences between Helgenstein, Lahm, or Geisberg, or Renner, what should I be thinking about? Are they different to work? Are they different in exposure? Are they different for different grape varieties? What What are they like from the production side? 
it's correct um every every Every, every one of these these vineyards um, is, uh, is 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 uh, based on a different personality. Um, Heiligenstein uh, is a is a vineyard that that stands out uh, for generations. Uh, it's quite interesting that if you're looking to the to the original appellation system in Austria and how wine was sold in Austria in the in the in the past uh, uh, centuries. Uh, you see that it, it was a, is a clear village appellation system. So basically, it was wine was basically sold after 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 the village appellation name. Uh, so you had a, a Langenläuser, a Strasse, Kremser, a Leubner, Kumpolskirchner, Brünnerstraße, and so on. Um, single vineyards on the labels were very rarely carried out, and they're only. Uh, if you're looking back like uh, 100, 150 years, there's only two vineyards that were, were really carried out as, as single vineyard names. One of them was Heiligenstein. For whatever reason uh, they did that, I think historically Heiligenstein was always uh, a vineyard that really stood out uh, in in everything that, that we had in the Danube area. If you're looking uh, down to it from the geological side, uh, it's it's a very specific vineyard because uh, the geology there is completely different to everything that we have normally in our Riesling vineyards. Uh, because normally uh, our Riesling vineyards are based on on a gneiss uh, structure. It's a brownish paragneiss with amphibolites and high content of mica. Um, but Heiligenstein is is originating uh, in the Permian times. Uh, it's a uh, Based on crystalline material, but but it, it's mixed up uh, with volcanic materials, a high content of silt, and uh, so the, the whole structure in in this vineyard is is completely different to everything else that we have. This is this is probably one of the reasons uh, why Heiligenstein uh, stands out. So legendary on Heiligenstein is also you know the, the naming of Heiligenstein. It's it's the the holy holy stone. It's not. Re it's it's always translated as holy stone, but which is not really correct. Uh, it's correctly uh, translated. It would. It should be named as the stone of the saints, which is um, in German. It's only two letters actually that differentiate between holy stone and the ho the, the stone of the saints. Quite, quite interesting, actually. And for some reasons, everyone, you know, would explain to you that uh, that Heiligenstein would be translated as holy stone, but he, which is not really correct. Uh, and many people uh, tell this story about Heiligenstein being the hellstone, uh, which is also not correct. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, because a Helen in about a thousand years ago was a, a mountainside that uh, suddenly made a, a stroke down. Um, I think there is a specific name in English, but I have I, I forgotten it. The thing is that what we still don't know how it came to the change, you know, from, from this sudden falling down uh, of, of, of a mountainside uh, to uh, to the saints, you know, and this this uh, transferring is. Uh, I've been discussing it uh, with John Hager uh, last year and uh, with um, uh, someone 
who is very into that historical naming things. Uh, but it's still, we, we still don't know very much. Nevertheless, uh, Heiligenstein is historically one of the really outstanding uh, Riesling vineyards in our area. And um, if you're looking to uh, the slope of Heiligenstein, so the outrunning hill, um, we have uh, the vineyard uh, which is called Lamb. And when, you, when you're looking now to, to this situation between the terraces on, on Heiligenstein on one side and uh, on Lamm on the slope of the other side, it's not only the specific situation there, I think it's something that is a kind of an overall structure that you find very often in the Danube area. Uh, because if you ask yourself why we have two grape varieties in the Danube area and not one, like in, like in Burgundy, for example, um, the reason for that is, is based in, on, on our vineyard structure. Uh, if you're coming to the Danube area with open eyes, uh, what, what are you going to see? You find there basically two archetypes of vineyard sites. You have on one side, you have terraces along the Danube and the side rivers of the Danube, uh, which are very, very dry, high mineralization in the soil, uh, which is ideal for Riesling production. But on the other side, we have vineyards that are based on loess, on clay, sandy soils. So vineyards that supply much better water supply to the wines. Uh, and this is absolutely not appropriate for Riesling. Riesling doesn't like that. And here comes Gruner in, 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 into the game. And uh, so basically Gruner and, and Riesling are complementary grapes. You know? So what one likes, the other doesn't like, and the other way around. And as, as we have in our area, these, these two archetypes of vineyards, so it's, it's, a, it's, it's a perfect, perfect mix you know, that, that we have through these two grape varieties. And if you look into Heiligenstein, you find exactly, uh, exactly you know, this, this situation that uh, especially, uh, and especially when you're looking to the best places for Grüner Veltliner, I think that for a great Grüner Veltliner, you need two components come together. You need, on one side, you need a, a good water supply to the wines. This is, this is one aspect. But on the other side, you need a good mineralization in the soil. So this is something that, that is exactly, you know, on the outrunning Riesling terraces, this is what you find. Because here you find already good water supply. And on the, on the other side, through the erosion from the terraces, you have a high mineralization in the soil, you know. So here you find basically the sweet spot, you know. And that counts, no matter, that counts for Wachau, that counts for Kremstal, that counts for Kamtal. So when, whenever you're looking out for that, it's, uh, it's, it's highly recommended, you know, to look after these places. Something, interestingly, uh, if, you, if you're looking on, on Google Earth, for example, on the situation, uh, this is something that you also can see in nature and then it's something that you can also see on the satellite. Because the funny thing is that when you're looking on the satellite, you know, on Heiligenstein, you see the horizontal terraces coming down the hill. And suddenly the orientation of the plantation of the, of the wines are changing from the horizontal to the vertical. Yeah? And this is something, and exactly at that, at that point, you have the border between Heiligenstein and Lamm. Yeah? And what about Geisberg? Well, sure I understand that. Geisberg is... Um, is uh, is the neighboring vineyard to Heiligenstein, so they're very close. They're really side by side, but right in between there's there's the geological border between uh, between the primary rock and and the Permian soil of Heiligenstein. So Geisberg basically is uh, it's kind of 
basically the, the east end of this geological plate in the in the Danube area. It's it's a part of the Bohemian mass. It's called the Kvölagneis plate, uh, and this is the the, the east uh, the east end of this plate. Um, it's a brownish paragnise with amphibolites and mica. But, uh, here, here the terraces are also coming down, and on the on the slope of Geisberg you have the same situation again. Here you have the Renner vineyard. Yeah, and uh, but the personality is somehow how different. I mean, I think that Terry describes it. Uh, very well. Uh, if you if you're reading uh, his descriptions of Geisberg and Heiligenstein, it's it's a completely different personality, and it, it develops completely different. And uh, but it's 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 a great uh, they're they're great sisters, you know, in a way. So you also have red grape varietals that you you grow up here in Noir, Saint Laurent, and Zweigel. Where where did those come from? Is that the Cistercian connection on the Pinot Noir, or how did you end up growing that, and and what are those like to work with? Yeah, that's uh, that's right. Uh, it's um, it's due to the Cistercians. The Cistercians brought Pinot to the area, and um, the thing is that I have a deep belief that the Danube area in general um, is predominantly white, and uh, is predominantly Riesling and Grüner but, and here comes the but, um, we have a, a limited amount of vineyards uh, that are based uh, on tertiary structures. Uh, you know that the, the Danube in the, in the past 60 millions of years has been uh, transporting and depositing material from the Alpine areas uh, in, in the Danube area. So overall, the millions of years, we've been br bringing river pebbles to the area, been depositing these, these river pebbles. At, at some places in our area, uh, you, you find vineyards that are really extreme when it comes to these uh, river pebbles. And uh, it's kind of comparable to, to the Rhone Valley, um, you know, this, this Calais type of, uh, of, of pebbles, uh, like feast-sized uh, round pebbles. And uh, as you can imagine, you have a very good drainage in these, in these vineyards, uh, which means that in, in our situation of an average perspiration of about 450 liters a year, uh, we are running during the summer times in very early dry stress situation in these vineyards. And this is something that as a, as a, as a, as a wine grower, you, you don't like at all for white wines, because for white wines in general, you, you rather um, have the strategy of having a, a, a moderate to good uh, water supply to, to your wines, uh, because otherwise you, you're forcing the wines to produce too many phenolic components in, in, in the grapes. I personally believe that uh, in these vineyards where you have this very early dry set stress situation, uh, it's it's much more appropriate uh, to, to grow red wine uh, than, than white wine. And and here I'm I'm concentrating on the on the Pinot Noir family. So Pinot Noir, Saint Laurent, Zweigelt, these are basically three generations of Pinot Noir. So Saint Laurent is a direct child of Pinot Noir, and in the next generation, uh, Zweigelt is also directly related uh, with Pinot Noir because Pinot Noir is the grandmother, you know, if you want. And uh, so here I'm, I'm, I'm basically, you know, trying, you know, to find out, you know, what kind of personality we we get from 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 these vineyards. For for the time being, we we have the whole family in uh, in our portfolio. 
uh, I'm I'm not sure, you know, what the future will bring if we uh, if in the future we will concentrate on on only two or maybe on only one of these varieties, or we will make a blend out of that. I think it's, it, it, this will be a historical development for for the time being. At at, at and at this stage, um, we uh, we are we are trying to find out on 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 the personalities that we get uh, from these vineyards, but. It's it's very important for me. I mean, it it was always important for Father Bertrand, um, and in in the same way, uh, it's important to me to um, to do something. It's and we we are very proud actually on these red wines. I mean, we uh, already two times uh, in a row we we had best Saint Laurent in Austria. Um, we and we we're getting more and more recognition actually on these wines. One of the things that's really interesting to me about you is that you have a unique ability with where you're situated in the cellar that you have uh, to try a lot of older Austrian wines that a lot of people in this country will, will never see. What are your impressions of vintages before the 90s? What are vintages that have sort of, from the drinker's perspective, really stood out for you uh, historically in Austria? Well, it, when it comes to, when it comes to, to the, the wines of our library, it's... I, there are a lot of aspects, actually, you know, that uh, that that could be mentioned here. I mean, because if if you're looking to to a library that goes back to the 40s, uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, we were Russian occupation zone, uh, which which meant that that all the former bottlings uh, went lost. Uh, in in our area, we have uh, one collection that is going back to 1903. Uh, and we really know that these wines are that old because the, the producer of these wines puts the vintage on the cork uh, and there are still original corkings. Uh, a collection like this uh, is, you could say, it's a kind of a memory of a, of a winery. And it, it does not only represent uh, the, uh, the developments in the winery itself, it also tells you on certain things that have been going on in, in the area itself. One thing that I find particularly interesting is that ageability of wine has nothing to do with alcohol. This is something that, that I found out uh, when I'm looking to, uh, to this collection. Uh, you have wines with 11.5 alcohol and they're still fantastic. And this is really amazing. And it, it, it definitely proves uh, that um, when you're looking to when you're looking today in, in the world of wine that that all all the signature wines and all these high rated wines that we're looking to 14 or 15 alcohol um, and I think it's it's not 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 really essential you know that these wines have that much alcohol also internationally uh, I'm I, I was born in 1966 and my my father uh, bought a few bottles of uh, 66. And I, I had one of these bottles was a was a Mouton sixty six uh, that uh, that was meant uh, to go to the U.S. and uh, in because originally they had no alcohol on, on the labels, but in these days in the U.S. they already uh, were obliged to put the alcohol on the label, and the bottles in indicating eleven point five alcohol, and uh, sixty six was the second best year in the sixties. And so, uh, I think it's also indicating, you know, that also in 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 Bordeaux, uh, these wines, you know, were much lighter in alcohol uh, than they are nowadays. 
I think this is one aspect. I think this is uh, one thing that I've learned uh, from these wines. You don't need alcohol to age for ageability. Another aspect is is that the the differences in vintages uh, was in these days much more severe. And I remember when when I took over in 1996, and and 1996 was quite a cool year. It was kind of a challenge year, uh, and uh, so. Uh, what we did, and we saw that you know, if uh, if we are not going to reduce the the yields in the vineyards, we 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 wouldn't get any ripeness there. So we started to make green harvest in in July, and um, in these days, it, it 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 was the first year, and Father Bertrand regularly you know went through the vineyards, and uh, and you know when he saw what we were doing, he came to me and said, "You are kind of you know you're a very brave man, you know, because uh, this is something that is very unusual. We have never been doing this, you know. And uh, the thing is that in these days, um, vintages, you know, made quite a big change, you know, through through all the years, because adaptations of yields were not based on, on direct intervention, on human intervention. They were always based on natural intervention. So it was either um, hail were reducing the yields, or it was frost who was reducing the yields, or there was alteration who was reducing the yields. And uh, so very often you had the situation you had you had a quantity-wise a very big year, um, and then the next year was a very small year, you know. And this went up and down, you know, in a, in a much more severe way uh, in what it is in comparison to today. Uh, nowadays, you know, we we are interfering much more. So that means that uh, that the yields are much more stable. The the level of uh, of uh, ripeness is much more stable. And I think this is this is an aspect also of of, of modern time. You know, one of the things that you've done is sort of take a look back to old winemaking methods through the pictures of Father Bertrand and others, but then also exploring that in a, a series of bottlings called the tradition bottlings that you do at, at Goebbelsberg. How does that compare to what we might think of as modern winemaking? What's the difference? Traditional winemaking, or let's say also you could refer to historical winemaking, is uh, something that I started to occupy with uh, in, um, in the late 90s. And it's kind of related also to our library, because uh, in these days we did uh, regular tastings from the library, and uh, one day we we had a discussion going on that it would be quite interesting to know what you know how these wines tasted when they were young, and how will our wines that we are doing nowadays will taste in thirty, forty, fifty years? And I thought, well, if you want to know how these wines taste, you need to know how these wines were made. You know, and I think this was the point when I started to occupy myself in in the question of of the of the histories of the estate winemaking practices, and uh, I started you know to to read in the old papers, asked Father Bertrand, compared it to to publications from nineteenth century and 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 all that, in in order to trying to find out you know how people and what what have been 
people have been doing and 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 I also started you know to to find out you know how how was mine made in 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 Greek Roman times middle ages and all these centuries you know when it comes then to 19th century and 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 all that what is kind of interesting when you're looking at that is that if you uh, if you're starting with Greek Roman times uh, up to the mid 19th century uh, and if you're looking to the craftsmanship side of winemaking, uh, there's not really much has been changing in these 2,000 years. So imagine you have a, a Roman winemaker that you transfer in the time machine of Michael J. Fox uh, to the mid-19th century. He could have very easily worked with the tools that he would have found 2,000 years later. With the mid-19th century, um, a lot of things started to change because due to industrial revolution, more and more technical equipment came into the cellars and started slowly to change uh, the craftsmanship side of a winemaker uh, over the next 150 years uh, and up to the point when you start to talk about modern winemaking. And I've always asked me, you know, what, I mean, modern winemaking, what is modern winemaking? I mean, modern winemaking... I think modern winemaking is a very is, is a very aroma-focused idea on winemaking. You know, I mean, considering what we're doing nowadays, uh, I mean, you know, all our attentions in our vineyards uh, uh, are are aimed to produce as as many aroma components in our grapes as possible, and then uh, at the perfect ripeness level and the perfect aroma ripeness level you know we are harvesting these grapes and in our cellar work we're trying now to protect these aroma components now as good as we can to bring the maximum of aroma components now into the bottle and into the glass you know so uh, i think every decision that we're doing no matter if it's in the vineyard or if it's in our cellar work is somehow circling around this idea of aromas and what's going to happen with the aromas and, and all that. You know? I think this is a, is, is a very, very accurate thinking and, and it's, it's also kind of, you know, reflected in, in our today's thinking, if you're looking to all these perfumes and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, everything is you know, smelling and whatever. But if you're looking to the, to the universe of a, of a, 19th century or early 19th century winemaker, they had a completely different idea uh, on, on winemaking. And uh, because in these days, they had the imagination that for, uh, for every wine, you have a kind of an, an ideal or a, a mature state. And, and my responsibility as a winemaker is to transform the wine from its embryonical state now into his ideal you could say it's it's a kind of a platonian idea because it's here you're not here you're not talking about the preser preservation of of, aromat of aromatic components you you're talking about the development process and this is something completely different you know because they had this idea that uh wine is like the human being you always have this when you when you're looking to literature in these days you always have this comparison between the human being and and and, and the wine so they said wine is like the human being and, and as we humans have to undergo certain developments until we are grown-ups also wine has to undergo these kind of developments until he's up to his ideal up to his maturity you know? and it's it's basically that they've been and that's that's uh, they have been talking about the teaching of the wine, the schulung uh, of the of the wine, in in French, élevage. Yeah? So um, uh, and and here this is uh, this is something that 
differentiates the whole thing also from from natural wine, you know, uh, because natural wine is is uh, is is uh, is kind of you know referring to the the very ancient times of winemaking, you know. You 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 definitely heard very many times, you know, that uh, a great wine is made in the vineyard and not in the cellar. You know, the big art of making wine uh, is to do nothing. You know, uh, and I, I think this this segment of natural wine should be rather called the, uh, the segment of of the non-intervention wines. You know, because the idea that stands behind of 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 uh, of these wines is to do as less as possible. You know. As, as less as possible sulfur to do as less as possible intervention uh, and all that which is leading to uh, to uh, uh, a rich individuality in in wine and I think this is this, this is very important today I think if, if you're looking to the world of wine nowadays uh, you recognize that that wine is getting more and more standardized you know uh, if, if, if you if you're buying uh, a cabernet in, in a certain uh, in, a, in a certain price segment from Argentina from from France from Australia uh, you hardly can recognize the differences between these wines you know it's uh, it's uh, with all the the technical and, and chemical possibilities that we have nowadays uh, all these wines to get more and more equal. And and I, I I absolutely understand and support you know uh, a, a movement uh, that says well this can't be you know our responsibility I mean I think that one of our base responsibilities as a winemaker is to represent the origins of our wines you know and so I think that that we have to find ways you know to 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 find the identities or a new identity of our wines. And and I think that that uh, m might be that natural wines is 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 a step too extreme, you know. But nevertheless, I think it it needs the initiative, you know, to get things moving. And uh, and so I mean, when when we have learned that through all these technological and chemical interventions, you you get to more standardization. On the other side, the more the the less you do in the interventional side, the more individualization you get. You know, the, I think this is something that we have learned through. That. But the difference to to uh, to uh, to the traditional winemaking is that traditional winemaking was not about doing nothing. You know, it was the direct intervention and the direct relation between the the winemaker and the wine. You know, it was my responsibility. The relation the relation between the winemaker and the wine is much more a relation between. A teacher and and his pupil, you know, it's my responsibility to teach the wine up to his potentials, you know, and I it's 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 my it's uh, it's up to my experience and up to my knowledge to know you know what what the wine needs now as a next step, you know, and uh, this I think this is the, the the very important part when it comes to traditional winemaking. It's it's always the direct uh, relationship, you know, between the winemaker and the wine. Have you changed things at all in the cellar since you took over? I imagine it's a pretty large space. Is there things that you've done inside the cellar work to make it more comprehensible to you and in your team? You know, I took over in in the in the late nineties uh, when in Austria uh, we had a big movement uh, towards a modernization in our cellars. I mean, everyone was replacing the the 
the old casks against stainless steel tanks, introducing computer-controlled fermentation, temperature control, and all, all these things. I think that was very important. Nevertheless, uh, when I took over at Goebbelsberg, um, I looked to my cellar and uh, and I th- and and I was thinking, what are you going to do now in here? You know, because um, you have all these casks and um, and you have a, a cellar that that for so many hundreds of years, you know, wine was made, and somehow I I couldn't get to the point, you know, to 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 bring. Uh, to to transfer that now in, into this very modern way of winemaking, and um, so I thought, well, what what other possibilities do you have? And and I I thought, well, maybe we could try, you know, to make it just the other way around. Instead of bringing temperature to the wine, maybe we can bring the wine to the temperature. So the idea was to set up different temperature zones within the facility. Uh, and then to to bring the wines either to warmer or to cooler areas, uh, and, and in order to avoid to pump the wines now from one corner to another, I had to make the casks make move. So this was the beginning of of the on the, the casks on rolls. Um, if you if you're looking to the pictures, uh, you see that that uh, that our casks are all on uh, movable, uh, so you can you can move them around and. And uh, through that, I developed a, a, a cellar system that, you know, that I, I, I call it the dynamic cellar system. I think it's a little bit stupid in English, but <laughs> it's uh, uh, nevertheless. Uh, it's uh, the thing is that every time you come into the cellar, it will probably look completely different, uh, as there's no fixed uh, places for for everything. Everything is is on the move and. Uh, during harvest time, the casks are moving to other parts of the cellars, and for Christmas and uh, and January, the the casks are moving outside of the cellars, so that they they cool down, make the um, acidity stabilization uh, out there when we have cold temperatures, and then for the maturation, they come back into to the, to the storage cellar. But I think this is something you know. That this is this is how I understand to. To move on, you know, with the development or to bring to bring the winery into a new generation uh, is, uh, you know, all these things are somehow based, you know, on our past. You know, I think this you 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 need to have the respect for the past, and and I think that especially when it comes to tradition, you know, I mean, what is tradition? And a famous Austrian composer said once, you know, tradition doesn't mean uh, to keep the ashes. It means to keep the fire alive, you know, and that's this is uh, is very important for me. What about the sparkling wine? I like it a great deal. How did you get involved with doing sparkling wine? Was it something they always made at the uh, Schloss Kobelsberg? Sparkling was uh, um, was uh, was made for a long time in Kobelsberg. Uh, we have in the library we have examples back to the late seventies. They made it first on a very low scale, and uh, then they made it on a much bigger scale, but not in the in the winery themselves. But when I took over, I, I brought it back to the winery, and nowadays uh, I'm uh, I'm 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 doing also I, I'm I'm doing uh, sparkling, which is yeah I think is. Uh, 
a sparkling that uh, that is kind of where I'm also trying, you know, to express, you know, the, the regional approach uh, with the uh, Grunewaldliner Riesling and a little bit of uh, Pinot. I think this is probably one of the exceptions when it comes to the philosophy. I think our sparkling is not made in the in the old Austrian tradition of sparkling making. Probably the reason is that, you know, I grew up with champagne and not with Austrians, with Austrian sect. Uh, so that's why I have a great appre appreciation, you know, for the more creamy style of, of champagne. And uh, also my wife is very picky, actually, on that. So <laughs> I, I had to... Um, uh, I had uh, to to make a, a strong uh, impact <laughs> in the in the in the, in the on, on the quality side on that. It's something that that I really enjoy, um, and uh, yeah, where I, I believe that yeah, we I think we believe we're doing also a good job. How have you find your wines to age, both still and sparkling? You've been there since the late nineties. Well, how are the wines evolving in the bottle? It's always a difficult uh, question to a winemaker, uh, to be honest, because we are, uh, as a winemaker, we we are very quick in saying that, well, you need to age these wines for so many years and, and, and whatsoever. I think wine at the end of the day is, is, a, is, is a product uh, for enjoyment. And uh, when it comes to enjoyment, I think uh, this is to a great part something that is related to the one who is who has to enjoy. You know, I always bring this example. I always bring this example when uh, in our library because uh, you know Austrians are maniacs when it comes to young wine drinking, uh, and especially Austrians when when they come to see these old wines. Uh, the first question that comes up, can you still drink them, you know? And I say, yes, you can drink them. <laughs> but that's not the question. The question is, can you still enjoy them, you know? And this is something that you have to ask yourself. And to explain what I mean, I always come to music. Um, I say, imagine you have a 15-year-old grown-up that has listened his whole life to, to rock and pop music. And you play now a Fug by Johann Sebastian Bach to him, then he will hear this piece of music, but he definitely will not understand the different voices. But imagine now, this 15-year-old is starting to learn piano, and if he's if he's practicing, you know, for a couple of years, he might come to playing Fugs. And if you play now exactly the same piece now to him, then he will not only hear it; he suddenly will understand it. And I think this is something that counts for many parts of our life, you know, no matter if it's wine, if it's food, if it's art, whatsoever. I think that enjoyment is directly related to our experiences. And uh, I think if you're never drinking uh, mature wine, you probably won't enjoy it, you know. Uh, but my recommendation is, especially when it comes to Austrian wines and also to, to our wines, is uh, because that's something that I'm quite often asked, you know, when do you recommend to drink your wines? I say, well, I think I recommend, you know, to drink the wines either in within the first two or three years, you know, when their beauty is, is laid 
uh, within their youth and 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 uh, and the freshness and and um, like a young girl, or after six to eight years, because in between they're going through their puberty, and um, so this is what I think, uh, and this is what I enjoy uh, nowadays. I'm, I'm I enjoy at the moment. Uh, 07, 06, 04 is brilliant at the moment. 05 is starting, is picking up now. Uh, so uh, I think that it, that's that's a, that's a brilliant age to, to drink these wines. Michael Mossbrucker, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you very much. Michael Mossbrucker of Schoskobelsberg, a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.